Hello and welcome to Beyond Well. I'm Sheila Hamilton. You know, I had one goal when I started this podcast, and that was to bring zero cost information to you about mental health and the evidence-based tips that you can use to stay well together. And as part of that promise, I only partner with organizations or people whose products I really believe in. So I'd like you to know more about Active Recovery TMS. TMS is an evidence-based non-drug therapy for depression and OCD. And if your depression medication has failed to bring you relief, transcranial magnetic stimulation is both safe, it's effective, and it's covered by most insurances. My late husband did not respond well to antidepressants or mood stabilizers, and I would have given anything to know that there are other remedies for depression that have been studied, tested, and FDA approved. TMS is targeted to the specific area of the brain that is underactive in depression and overactive in OCD. And the patient testimonials, which we're going to be sharing, are so emotional. These people literally have their lives back after undergoing treatment. I believe in the entire team at Active Recovery TMS, and they'll work with you on an individual basis to make sure you get relief. TMS therapy is covered by most insurance plans and with multiple locations in Oregon and Washington, there is a location near you. Learn more at activerecoverytms.com. Welcome back to Beyond Well. I'm Sheila Hamilton. And as you know, this is a program for people who want to learn more about our interior lives. And I think that I have shared with you how important it was for me in the days and weeks after I lost my late husband to suicide, to be able to make an account of what I had gone through, to be able to actually process through reading and writing and being able to reflect on the words that I'd put on the page about constructing a narrative for me to be able to go forward. That's why I was so fascinated in learning about the work of Dr. Norman Rosenthal. Dr. Uh, Rosenthal is a world-renowned psychiatrist. He's a public speaker, and he's a best-selling author who has been known for his innovative research and inspirational writing. He's currently clinical professor of psychiatry at Georgetown University School of Medicine, and he's listed as one of the best doctors in America. When you hear about his scholarly work, when you hear about his authoring and co-authoring, you're going to understand why. This is such a treat for me, Dr. Rosenthal, to talk about both your body of work and seasonal affective disorder and trauma and some of the other things that you focused on, but also to begin to talk about narrative and poetry and how incredibly healing these things can be. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. How did you first as a clinician begin to see the value of writing, reading, and listening to poetry as a potential form of healing? It came upon me gradually. I had always related to poetry. And as I tracked back and thought back, it has always given me that power. But the actual idea for my book, Poetry Rx, came to me one evening when a friend of mine called me to tell me that he had suffered a serious loss of someone he really loved. Mm. And I was there on the other side of the phone really stuck for words, not really knowing what can I tell him that'll make a difference. And somehow knowing that he was steeped in the arts, I said, you know, 
Losing is an art. Mm. And like any other art, it can be developed. And he was all of a sudden silent. Mm. And he said, do you know that poem? I said, which one? He said, one art by Elizabeth Bishop. Yeah. And he read it to me. It's Mm. a very moving poem. And it is now the first poem in my book. And as he read, I could hear the voice getting lighter and easier. And funnily enough, I felt lighter and easier as well. And I thought, wow, you know, poems can actually do that. That's extraordinary. So that began the story here. I really relate to your friend because I think um, if you don't know much about my background, I began writing after the death of my late husband. And I had never grieved before. And I didn't know much about grief. And I went back to the deep, deep, you know, Greek poets and the people who had begun as the ancients writing about loss and uh, found a poem, uh, even in our deepest grief, it draws drop by drop. It's by Aeschylus. Beautiful. I know that line is fabulous. It's a fabulous line because what it told me is that you're going to have to have patience throughout this. You're going to have to have a kind of rigor around grieving that you might bring to some other long-term project. It's a beautiful poem and I will read it at the end if that's okay with you. Uh, But I was thrilled to learn about this work. And so what you've now done is created this kind of communal effort to try to bring together poems that really move people into that realm of emotional healing, correct? Absolutely. And the first section of the book is loving and losing because to love is to risk losing. To recover from loss, you have to relearn to love again. And it's a very long, difficult process. There's so much about poetry that I feel as if it has enough mystery in it that the reader can sort of lay their own meaning over the lines. And I've read poems before in writer's group where two people would come away with completely different meanings about the same poem. Is that part of the reason why it's so effective? It is. It is. They they deliberately leave ambiguous loops open. And is that ambiguity part of the process of good psychiatry? Is allowing the person enough room to come to their own conclusions about what will really work for them on a healing journey? Yeah, I would definitely say so. And the longer I've been a psychiatrist, the more I have learned to ask questions instead of give statements, because the question will open the loop up. Mm-hmm. And the statement can close it down. I think people have two opinions about poetry. It's either completely unreachable or they love it, as I do. So I'm wondering if in making poetry accessible to people who are struggling, it wouldn't be a wonderful introduction to them for being a, a poetry lover their entire lives through both their really good times and their really hard times. My hope is not just that this poetry book will appeal to people who already love poetry, but to people who think, what is this poetry business? Mm -hmm. How come so many people enjoy it? These are short poems. They're not long poems, but each one contains a mystery and a lesson and a story and therefore invites the reader in to make of 
what does this thing really mean? And then I give some actual nuggets, takeaway points that you can get from the poems. And I tell a little bit about the poet and how this poem arises authentically from this particular poet. Is there one, Dr. Rosenthal, that really has spoken to you because of a personal experience that you've gone through? I mean, one of the things we always try to do is normalize the doctors who come on, make them human. We often allow you to talk about any struggles you've gone through too, because you don't often get the camera turned like that. But is there a poem that reflects a time that you've actually struggled? Well, I think when I left South Africa and I came to America to become a psychiatrist with my young family, sort of make my way in this great land of ours uh, from a rather small country, South Africa, I was so excited and so forward-looking that I buried the grief of leaving behind my family of origin, Mm. a familiar landscape, Mm. familiar ways. And for some reason, I gravitated to a poem by the poet Salvador Quasimodo, Mm -hmm. a much little known (laughs) poet uh, who actually won the Nobel Prize. Oh, wow. There's a sense that he actually neglected his mother when she was younger. You know, he left her behind to go ahead to go to a new life. And now he's writing her this poignant letter. Mm -hmm. But part of his grieving is that he didn't pay her the love and attention she really needed. Mm. And in her selflessness, she let him go and didn't put a guilt trip on him. This is my construction. I don't know if it's true. Mm -hmm. But now he realizes, you know, what an enormous gift she gave him by letting him go, not holding him back, smiling her wry smile. But the same grief is a grief for himself that he has now lost the opportunity of maintaining a better connection with her. I have been recently listening to um, Dr. Huberman, who's an incredible communicator like yourself and has a great lab at Stanford. And he was talking about a lot of data coming out around the power of writing as one of the most beneficial forms of trauma processing. And I wonder if from your point of view, why this writing, reading, reflecting can be so beneficial to people that are attempting to process trauma? Well, so much uh, emotional processing means getting the emotional side of your brain and the intellectual side of your brain, the analytic side, roughly described as the right and the left hemisphere, although nothing is so cleanly divided in the nervous system. But it's getting those two to work together. Mm -hmm. That's part of cognitive behavior therapy, and that's part of writing therapy. There's some fantastically good work by Dr. James Pennybaker, um, professor of psychology at Austin, at the University of Texas at Austin. And there are many, many well-constructed scientific studies that show that even 20 minutes of writing four times over a 10-day period can have effects that ramify out to six months, a year, two years. They follow even blood values of immune cells, capacity to be rehired after you've lost a job. Mm. Many, many things because you're processing things in a useful way. But a key part of the instruction that he gives in this exercise is think of your deepest thoughts and feelings. Mm. And the 
predictive effect of the writing seems to go with thoughts. If you can really think, what do these feelings mean? That's very big deal. Um, one would think that it would be really scary for the person who has experienced, say, for instance, an assault or a sexual trauma, or they've witnessed a terrible crime or a murder to actually write out what has happened to them. But I'm understanding that there is profound relief once they've done that, especially if you're doing it with the care of someone who can help you process what it is that you've written. Are there any guidelines that you'd have for people that are, are attempting to try to use writing as a way of processing trauma? Well, yes, I would certainly say look up James Pennybaker, P-E-N-N-E-B-A-K-E-R. I'm sure he's got a lot of resources, but his writing exercise is very simple. Just 20 minutes on four occasions over about a week or 10 days, okay. write down your deepest thoughts and feelings and write quickly. Don't mm -hmm. worry, don't type on the computer, write. Yeah. Write quickly and don't worry about sentence structure or grammar, that's not the issue. And don't worry about making it good writing. Nobody's gonna yeah. keep this writing. It's not something that you're gonna to wanna to publish. This is your processing. Mm -hmm. and thoughts and feelings do it four times and the evidence is overwhelming that just that little i mean 80 minutes wow. invested in this very simple exercise all we need is a pad <laughs> a pen and the simple instructions and the science shows that the effects can be profound texas instruments laid off a bunch of their workers down in texas and the ones who did the writing exercise were rehired more quickly wow. than their controls. And uh, it was really profound. That's incredible. And I'll just share with you what happened to me was my late husband left an enormous debt for me. And so I had both the fear of losing my house and raising my daughter after his death. And so I couldn't really afford therapy. And I'd never done therapy prior. And I would come home from my work as a journalist and I would sit at my typewriter and just replay scenes that had happened with him that I still could not reconcile. I couldn't reconcile missing his mental illness. I couldn't reconcile staying with him that long as things got worse. And I would just do bits like that. And then I would lie on the floor with my dog and I would cry. And one of the most profound things that happened, Dr. Rosenthal, was there was a tree outside my window and this tree had been battered by that winter storm. I mean, it was broken and it was craggy and it was impossibly, I didn't think it would survive. And I wrote that entire winter through spring and in springtime, that tree had kind of renewed itself. And I remember thinking, well, my metaphor for this entire experience is that I also went down deep into my root system and I hibernated and I derived from the earth what I needed to be able to survive this. And I think that probably, you know, six month period was one of the most profound of my life. And I was giving myself the therapy that I couldn't afford. Mm -hmm. What an amazing thing. Now, in hindsight, there's so much data about it, right? But internally, essentially, we do know how to heal ourselves if we give ourselves a little bit of that space. And also, as you say, you don't have to be a writer to do it. Right. Yes. And the power of words, the power of narrative 
it's ancient. It goes mm -hmm. back to the epics. It moves you. I'm also just thinking about as, as tribal descendants, how common it was for people to sit around the campfire and talk about being chased by the tiger or talk about how they were nearly killed or, you know, whatever it is that was traumatic, they drew story around that in order to process it. Extraordinary. So how as a psychiatrist, do you bring the power of that narrative into the sessions that you're having with people? Well, sometimes, um, you know, this particular method is to take a poem that speaks to something that I'm seeing happening in front of me. Mm -hmm. Let's say, for example, I'm seeing a couple that's disputing with one another and they're arguing who's right. Mm. She started, she did such and such. Well, I wouldn't have done that if he hadn't initially. So back and forth, back and forth. Then they turn to me like I'm supposed to be the judge. And of course, you know, I'm not a judge and my office is not a courtroom. I'm not going to give a verdict and pass a sentence. I'm there to help them reconnect and find what was it that attracted them to each other in the first mm. place. So I might then say, wait, can, can we just read a poem for a moment? They'll look at me like I've lost my wits. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, they're not going to say, no, don't read the poem because they're at this time, at this point, they're a little intrigued. I'll say, okay, this is by Rumi. Mm. It is writing in the 1200s, so that's like 800, 900 years ago. So that now makes it even more abstract and distant. And then I say, I read, okay? And I'll say, out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing, there is a field. I'll meet you there. Mm. When the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about ideas, language, even the phrase each other doesn't make any sense. And so then I'll say, you know, he's going past who's right and who's wrong. Mm. He's saying, let's just leave those aside and meet in a field. Now, when you lie down in a field, you're looking up at the sky, you're not looking in a confrontational way at each other's eyes. You're looking at, up at the sky and then I'll put out a hand, I'll meet you there. I'm making the first move, what in mm -hmm. couple therapy is called the repair attempt. Mm -hmm. Let, let's meet in a field and let's talk about, let's just lie there and look at the sky and look at the grass. And it moves people from the right wrong issue to the let's reconnect mm -hmm. issue. That can then start a conversation. How can the two of you reconnect? Mm -hmm. Is there a place where you lie together in the long grass metaphorically yes actually when we're in bed at night and just lying there peacefully uh, sometimes he'll say something to me she'll say something to me and it'll feel close and it'll feel warm okay let's go to that place imagine we're there and start talking to each other so the poem has been the catalyst that changes from right wrong to let's connect that, that's so profound to me. And it also just alleviates all of the potential of one person walking out saying he always sides with you. <laughs> Rumi sides with no one, right? <laughs> Rumi sides with, you know, love always. So what a, what a perfect poem to be able to rely on. So that's just one example. There's another Rumi in, in the collection, which is really wonderful. It's called The Guest House. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and then, but there are many other poets that are really worth, they're worthwhile. And, and I weave stories from my own life and from the lives of my patients into the narrative. It must be interesting when you come across poets who are now known to have suffered from depression or from anxiety or from some of the maladies that people are coming to you to try to figure out. Do you detect in those people who are known to have suffered from a mental illness, the kind of knowing about the despair that people are going through, that they can touch those words and get to those emotions that we might not otherwise be able to? If you look at the little bio sketches that I present, so many of them have got mood disorders, yeah. as we would call them now, depression, anxiety, yeah. I would say in excess of half of them. Easily. There's a wonderful poem. Stevie Smith is a woman poet. She was a British poet. She's in the last section, aging and dying, not waving, but drowning. Nobody heard him, the dead man, but still he lay moaning. I was much further out than you thought and not waving, but drowning. Poor chap, he always loved larking and now he's dead. It must have been too cold for him. His heart gave way, they said. Oh, no, no, no. It was too cold always. Still, the dead one lay moaning. I was much too far out all my life and not waving, but drowning. Wow, that is wonderful. Um, Dr. Rosenthal is... He's, he's reading from his new book called Poetry Rx. And I, I think I'm going to buy this and give it as a gift to most of my writer friends. The great writer Mary Carr told me once, Dr. Rosenthal, that she thought that if you had the bandwidth to be a good poet or a good writer, that you might have also been gifted with the bandwidth for depression or anxiety or a mood disorder. Do you see in the way that she characterizes that? that there could be something to that because so many people with huge intellectual bandwidth also suffer from these, you know, what they called the melancholies. I did um, select that because firstly, she was absolutely brilliant. Some months before she wrote that poem, she had made an attempt on her own life. She did it at work mm -hmm. and retired with, you know, she was disabled. He was much too far out. I was much too far out all my life. Yeah. Some people feel like they're drowning in the midst of everybody else's carnival. It's very poignant and she's capturing that. It's so brilliant because, you know, on the one hand, she says he's dead. And on the other hand, she says he's moaning. Mm -hmm. It's like a movie where you see a dead body and then you get a voice over. Right. So she's creating in this very short poem, this picture of the dead man, what he would have been thinking, mm. the people on the shore making kind of casual callous comments, his heart probably gave out. Right. Well, I mean, it was just a vain speculation. Yeah. She's just painting this multifaceted picture in such a short poem. Oh, it's wonderful. Have other practitioners begun to talk to you about integrating this into their practices as well? Well, just the other day, I did give grand rounds at Cornell's Department of Psychiatry mm -hmm. 
and they were very interested and they were taking notes which poem which poem would you use for which particular kind of problem and they took it very seriously it was so rewarding you know because you know I've always been far out all my life I've always (laughs) kind of taken things that that have been on the fringe and try to bring them into you know I've often felt you know the the well-trodden path there's so many people on that path let me go into the woods on the side and find the the little beds of truffles or whatever it is in in the woods and and be able to bring something unusual or different to the picture that's wonderful I felt like that as a journalist too where I'm always just maybe five years, 10 years ahead of the times, you know, everybody's like, what is she doing out there? You know, right now we're really interested in some of the alternative therapies that are now legalized in Oregon in terms of psilocybin and ketamine use and things like that. And I think even your, you know, reaching for narrative and poetry is that idea that the DSM just didn't do it for us. You know, we didn't see great gains in people's well-being over the past 20 years. And so, Maybe we do need to go into the truffles a little bit. And it's fun doing it, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. I want to just share the poem that I was telling you about, and hopefully maybe you'll consider adding it to the reading. This is so helpful for someone who is going through the grief or the loss of a loved one. And it's by Aeschylus, the great Greek poet. Even in our sleep, pain which cannot forget falls drop by drop upon the heart until in our own despair against our will comes wisdom through the awful grace of God. And, you know, I um, carried that with me and I have to say, there's so many people that I end up reciting it to, whether it's from trauma or whether it's just illness or whether it's a very, very difficult time in our life, it is always drop by drop, isn't it? Absolutely. You know, when I first heard that poem some years back, it sent chills up my spine mm-hmm. because it's so wise and it's yeah. so poignant and accurate, you know, yeah. in the night, you know, a depressed person wakes up in the night, can't yeah. go back to sleep. And the pain comes like water torture, drop by drop by drop. And you cannot forget that pain. It's so mm-hmm. profound. I actually, one of my books was called The Gift of Adversity. Mm. how you can take bad things and turn them into something useful. Mm. And I quoted that poem because I thought it was, wow. it moved me so much just as it did you. I think but, I'm going to have to buy every book you've ever written now. <laughs> Your work is just, it's so, like you said, wading into the truffles because you were on TM before it was accepted by most practitioners. You were understanding seasonal affective disorder long before other people really admitted that where we live and how much light we get is incredibly essential to our well-being. So beyond poetry, what do you see for your truffle hunt next? Where are you headed? Are you interested in this um, alternative medicines and the different uses of natural substances in psychiatry? Anybody who has curiosity has to be interested in that. Yeah. They're fascinating. And, you know, some of my patients have experimented with it, sometimes with good results and sometimes with disastrous results. Yeah. So I think it has to be done carefully. 
Yeah. And under certain supervision, I don't think it being a free for all is actually a good idea because these are powerful chemicals and they can, any chemical can do good and can do harm. My next area of fascination is kindness, Mm -hmm. the importance of kindness, not as a sort of sappy, kind of weak, soft, useless emotion, but as a potential healing principle for Mm -hmm. our very angry times. Yeah. So that's where I think I'm going next. You know, I thought of doing a follow-up poetry book, but part of my excitement has always been to open new ground. Yeah, right. You know, it's super interesting to me because a lot of my work right now is in the transition from personal well-being into sort of workplace well-being where organizations are attempting Mm -hmm. to try to learn how to truly support people and what apps do you offer people for wellness? What health interventions can you make that actually improve the lives of people? And I think what most managers and senior executives really miss is the power of kindness and true connection with Mm -hmm. employees as people with Mm -hmm. true curiosity in their lives, with true empathy about what they're going through, not really attempting to fix it, but actually attempting to understand. And so I think that that book about kindness is going to have an amazing ripple effect throughout corporate America because people are struggling there. Workforces are just so stressed out and burnout is at epidemic highs and people are reporting, you know, such high rates of depression and anxiety that's led to the great resignation. And I keep thinking like, how do you teach kindness? How do you teach these managers about how to be emotional human beings with their other people who work around them? I think you're on to something there. Thank you. Thank you. Now, part of teaching kindness is showing kindness. It's like, you know, when you teach kids principles, if you are living those principles yourself, they're more likely to take them seriously. It's if you're doing the sort of do what I say, not what I do, right. that doesn't. So, so a, a nasty CEO who comes in and shouts at everybody and then makes them attend a seminar in kindness, right. that's not going to get you very far. But, you know, maybe, maybe a CEO who remembers everybody's birthday drops a little email onto their thing saying, I understand mm-hmm. it's your birthday. I hope it's a good day for you, you yeah. know, or whatever, just to personalize it. That's, I think, something that would be a good thing to do. And it just brings me back to, I was reading a lot of the research about people who have recovered from a mental illness. Those who are back at work and leading good lives and have families often point to that one person in their life who believed in them, even during their darkest struggle, they believed in the Mm -hmm. person who was kind to be able to kind of take them to the other side of it. And Mm -hmm. so I always tell people, boy, never underestimate the power of your kindness, never underestimate. It's profound. And, and how we really need it. You know, we need kindness, all of us. It's not a weakness. It's human quality, but often it's knocked out of people so that you just we're not using that important aspect of our humanity oh dr rosenthal i could talk with you forever as i'm looking at the clock saying i've probably already taken too much of your time but i have enjoyed the conversation so much Uh, again 
The Gift of Adversity is one of his books. Winter Blues, the New York Times bestseller around the idea that we all have got to get some sunlight in our eyes. He's also written the book Transcendence and now the book that we've been talking about today, Poetry Rx. Dr. Norman Rosenthal, what a pleasure to have spent some time with you. Thank you very much for being with us. Thank you. It's really been a joy. If you've been listening and loving the podcast, as some of you say you have, please give us a thumbs up wherever you listen. Mostly Apple Podcast does the best job with their reviews. Thanks again and make it a great day. Bora Health is a nonprofit alcohol and drug treatment center in Portland, Oregon, that has been helping youth, adults, and families for nearly 50 years. They offer compassionate, comprehensive, and affordable care for everyone, regardless of background, orientation, or ability to pay. Bora recently opened a new state-of-the-art campus in Portland's Southeast Gateway District, and the entire campus is healing and supportive. You can find out more about their full array of evidence-based therapies for drug and alcohol treatment at www.forahealth.org. If you or a loved one needs support, there are many options and personalized approaches to care. Reach out to Fora Health at 503-535-1151 or see the show notes for more details.